They seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ, the God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. It's our uh, practice here at Redeemer to spend some moments in silence before uh, a sermon is given. And the reason why we're doing that is that we're asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the magnitude of what's been read and to open to us our our hearts so that they can worship Jesus. And so would you do that with me uh, in this moment of silence before the sermon? Let's pray. Father, it's an amazing uh, thing that you sent your son into the world to experience this. Um, It's daunting to read about, much less speak about. And I ask now that the Holy Spirit would speak to your people and to show us, Lord, that this was not only necessary, but this was your ultimate aim and goal to rescue your people, uh, to show us the depth of your love, to show us the length at which you would go um, to save us, and Lord, I, I ask that that would become uh, clearer to, to those in the room tonight. 
um, and that you would teach us that this is, this is what makes the world go round. This is what everything revolves around, the innocent Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so show us that right now. Um, draw us deeper into your Son. In Christ's name, amen. Um, my parents, if you, if you grew up in the 90s, you may remember a show um, called America's Funniest Home Videos. And my parents tried to get me to enter uh, a contest to, to be one of the funniest people in America in a video. And a, a few years back, I found a VCR. Kids back in the day used to watch movies on like these things called tapes. And you put it in a VCR player. And um, the video was so terrible of, of me. And it was, it was so wretched. I, I had to ask my parents a few questions. One of them was... Uh, why in the world would you ever encourage me to do this? Um, this isn't funny. And why would you send it into actual people? Um, and part of the thing about being parents is that we're, we're somewhat blind to our children and how they actually are in, in the world. We're overly loving to our children. We spoil them with our love. And what I want you to think about uh, tonight is... The relationship between God the Father and God the Son was always perfect. That there's this idea in the, in the Old Testament, all throughout Scripture, that there's a cup of blessing that God has for His people. And this is what Jesus was always full of in drinking. It was the Father's delight in Him. Um, and it was right. That he should be pleased with, with Jesus. And the point is, God doesn't have blinders on, on about, about Jesus. That his view of Christ was always accurate because Jesus was completely perfect at all time. And, he, and not only that, but he did exactly what God told him to do and in the way that God told him to do it. And what we've seen already tonight from the previous readings is that in the midst of that perfect relationship, the son, and just imagine this as a parent, the son has a request for his dad, for the father. And it is that I, I don't want to drink this cup, this cup of wrath that is what you're calling me to do. I don't want to do it. I, I want there to be another way. And the story of Good Friday is God the Father not granting that honest and fair request from Jesus. That, that, that is so hard to take in. And that's the reason why the darkness of these passages are very, very, very intentional. Because all the stuff that we don't want to experience was consumed in and through the body of Jesus on this night 2,000 years ago. And it really happened. Now, as, as you get older in life, and many of you kids have probably already experienced this, but you, you experience so much of the brokenness in this world um, with suffering, with death, and, and you come to realize that substitution and blood 
really is necessary to put things right. It really is necessary for things to get back to the way that they should be with God, with creation and and with yourself. And Good Friday is helping us own the fact that we actually need someone to suffer and die for us. That's hard to take in as self as self-sufficient people. It really is. And I I want you to see how Jesus gets at that with these women in in Jerusalem in verse 27 through 31, where the daughters of Jerusalem, they're weeping. If If you can picture this, they're seeing Jesus heading to his crucifixion and then they start crying. They start weeping. Um, And then Jesus says something very, very strange to them. Starting in verse 27, he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when the wood is dry? And what many scholars think that metaphor about wood is talking about is that Jesus's presence on earth was a right time for folks to see and enter the kingdom of God. But no one understood what he was doing. No one understood that the king of the cosmos had come. I mean, this is the king of the Jews. This was his goal to be despised and rejected. Uh, Isaiah says that he was so ugly that no one would even look at him. And notice, you know, the, the physical stuff is bad enough, but these are these are relational things that are so hard to endure. I don't know if you've ever um, felt like you've been outside of a group that you couldn't quite get into or outside of a relationship with person And for whatever reason, they just would not let you get close to them. There was something about you that they just couldn't stand. Those are the things that Jesus was feeling on on the cross. Do you know what it feels like when somebody despises you? When somebody uh, looks at you and they're just they're just disgusted. These are the things that Jesus drunk into himself. And that's what Jesus feels at this. I mean, this place called the skull. I mean, how dark does it get? And he was completely alone in that dread and in that darkness. Now, since I've been since I've been a little boy, my earliest memories, um, I, I think I've always had this very acute awareness of what I would call the wrath of God. And I don't think it necessarily came from being raised in the church, which I was. I think it comes from. Just knowing that I'm alive and if there is something of me that lives beyond my physical body after I die, I'm both terrified and intrigued by what that means for how I think about my present moment and how I live out my present reality. That there's an eternal part of me that has to give an account. And it it becomes so overwhelming to me at times I think this is what the Bible means at the very beginning when it says that the earth was formless and void. Tohu vabohu is how the Hebrew puts it. Um, it. It means utter chaos. That there's no order. There's no way to grab a hold of anything. And it's just nothingness. 
And one time, um, this feeling came over me, and it was so dreadful and dark. And the best way I can describe it is like, if there was a God, I didn't believe in God at this time, but if there was a God, I was certain that I was outside of him. And if the verdict had been pronounced in that moment, I would have been, in the truest sense, lost in the cosmos. And I'd be forever unknown. And I knew that I was under some wrath, the the displeasure of whatever it was in the earth. And in that moment, which I felt like it lasted for forever, I looked up and I I had a friend with me, my buddy Daniel, uh, who I grew up with. And my buddy Daniel, he's a big football player guy. I looked up and he was crying for me and with me. And what I want you to see about Jesus tonight is that in his hour of deepest need, there was God left him alone. Like no one was with him. And the reason why is so that he could rescue people like you and me. The reason why he left Jesus is so that he could be near to you and near to me in our hour of deepest need. And, you know, I, I, uh, I've certainly had tons of bad days between then and now. If you have a bad day at work or you get bullied at school or you are frustrated with people around you, a lot of times we have people in our life. Sometimes it's our family. Sometimes it's close friends that we can go back to or we can be at rest and be at peace. But Jesus didn't have that tonight. Not this night. He had what uh, Brian prayed, the, the complete and total separation from the one that was always his love, was always enthralled with him. And this night, it, it really is, it's good for us only if we see and own and see the necessity of it being bad for Jesus in our place. And the, the interesting thing about what Jesus is saying as he's heading to the cross to these women is that if all you feel is sadness about what's happening to me, then this is what you need to do. You need to cry for your very life and your children's life. He's saying, I'm not dying for your sympathy. I'm dying for you. In your place. That this must happen. No one likes that initially. No one thinks that our need is that deep. Everything against uh, is, is like a, in our flesh. It's against that deep need. And what Jesus is saying is that my crucifixion, the brutality of it. You know, we, we have these things in our churches that it's a brutal death instrument. But the reason why we hang those things up, the cross in churches, is because it's necessary for the salvation of human beings. I would like to see, by the way more open tombs in churches, but it's kind of hard to, you know, craft that. Um, Around the time that Luke was writing, you know, so Luke was writing to a couple of audiences. He was writing to a guy named Theophilus, but he was also writing to the wider community of the Christian church at the time around 70 AD. And something terrible happened to the Jews in 70 AD. The Roman army surrounded the city and it was absolutely brutal. 
on the Jewish people. Um, bad, bad, bad stuff happened to the Jewish people. And what Luke is saying is that that is a type of judgment day, but it was only a shadow of what life outside of Christ was going to be like. I mean, if you think about what Jesus says, like what could be worse? Some of you have experienced suffering to where you wish that you cursed the day of your birth, just like Job. You wish you had never been born. And Jesus says, the thing that's worse than non-existence is life outside of me. And Jesus has been saying all along throughout his life, I have to be rejected. I have to suffer. I have to die because of what was prophesied in the Old Testament, but also what, what has to be undone in the hearts of human beings, which is, as always, we want to divide the world up into good and bad people. We want good things. And these are good things like safety and security, just like they did in the first century. But the good things that we want in this life, we have to be very, very, very careful that we don't take those desires and place, replace them with the necessity of what Jesus does here. And the reason why is because every, every human being, we struggle with these two main things. We don't want to depend on God. And we don't naturally want to love our enemies and those who hurt us. And so what does he do? He says, I'm going to show you what it means when you follow me. I'm going to show you what it means to put others before yourself at all times. And I am going to give you an example, but, but I'm also going to be your substitute. And here's how I'm going to step in the way of that awful wrath of God for you, for me. I'm going to take it into myself. I'm going to be stricken by God. And what he did, you know, he's tasting this, this sour wine. What he's tasting is the disgust of other people, of his enemies towards him. And he experienced that existential feeling of being lost in the nothingness that was before creation. That there's a sense into which the whole creation, when it gets dark and we're about to read it, there was a decreation of sorts. When Jesus himself was dying, it was becoming the whole earth was becoming formless and void again because the creator was being killed. And in the midst of all that, <laughs> and this is why Jesus uh, needs to be worshiped. He was so obedient and gracious to the very end. And the best way to practice Good Friday is to go forgive somebody is to absorb the brunt of somebody's offense and move into the midst of people who will misunderstand you and you don't correct them. You just be with them. And you pray that God would help you see them as he sees you. And if you do that in this life, each day, what you'll do is you'll get a little thimble taste of what Jesus felt on the cross. Now, look at verse 34 and 35, the remarkable kindness, even in death, when Jesus is saying he's hanging there between two criminals and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then they play a game with his clothes. They cast lots for his garments and he's falsely accused and he has no covering and he's completely exposed. Now, uh, 
abuse in all forms is absolutely terrible. But being abused without any way to cover yourself can be one of the most humiliating things in this life. And I think that detail is included here in Luke because Jesus wants to invite you into your deepest fear, into my deepest fear, and he's looking at you from the cross, and I think he's saying, I know, I know you. I know you down to the level and depth of the detail in which you have been harmed, in which you have been hurt in your deepest moment. I know exactly what it's like. I know. And the, the irony of verse 35, they say, they're yelling out, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Messiah. And they don't know that this is precisely how he's going to save others by not saving himself. It's so hard to be exposed and to not retaliate. There is nothing worse. This is, we have to come back to this. As the Christian church, there is nothing worse than killing the most innocent person that's ever lived. And the more you walk with God, the more you realize is that that murder exists within. And if I had been there, like we just sang, I would have been calling out with the crowds. I want Barabbas. Let's give me Barabbas. But kill him. That's when you experience, you know, Jesus, when he looked, when he looked back across the fire at Peter after he had denied him three times, it just totally demolished Peter. Just a gaze. After you heard the rooster and Jesus looked back. That's us. At our best. And when you begin to willingly own that, that that's a part of your story, what begins to happen is that you have the bravery to go into the darkest areas of your life and the darkest areas of the lives of other people. Because what you'll learn through experience is that Jesus is in the midst of it, that he is in the darkest evil and he's never in retreat. And he's always winning, even when he's losing. Because it's the deeper magic of the gospel. And I just I want to close by reading verses 44 through 49. And I want you to notice the last two words of this short passage. And we're going to pick up on those two words on Sunday. This is how we'll close tonight. Uh, Luke uh, chapter 23 verses 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Centurions, enemies of God's people back then, by the way. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts 
And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So I want you to hold on to that uh, image as we go into Holy Saturday. Let me pray. Father, that we would behold these things, uh, these things that you've given to us in the scriptures. And Lord, I ask that your, uh, your good gospel um, would not be avoided this weekend. And that we would sit in, in the crucifixion and that we would sit in Holy Saturday because at the end of Holy Saturday is resurrection. And so, Lord, let us not be afraid to enter the darkness, whatever darkness that may be in each of our lives tonight. Be kind.